Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Newberg's Network podcast in sociology. I'm Patrick Sheehan, one of your hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dick Flax about his new book, written with his lifelong partner, Mickey Flax, titled Making History, Making Blintzes, How Two Red Diaper Babies Found Each Other and Discovered America. It's out from Rutgers University Press in 2018. Dick, welcome to the show. So glad to be here, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, usually we start these interviews by having the interviewee tell us a little bit about yourself, but since this book is all about your and Mickey's lives, I think we'll do it a little bit differently. Uh, rather than have you recount your whole life here, and it's a compelling life, everyone should read the book, I'd rather uh, introduce the book, give a brief tour of what it covers, and then dive into some questions on some of its main themes. So I'll do that now. So Making History, Making Blintzes, it's a, it's a shared memoir co-authored by Dick and Mickey Flax that graciously opens the window, a window onto the lives of two people who found themselves near the center of some of the most important moments and social movements of the American 20th century. The book trades off between Mickey and Dick's narratives and develops this theme of how they mix their private and public lives, how they combine political activism, making history with the sort of day-to-day needs of life, uh, making blintzes, uh, traditional Jewish food being one of those, but also they made friends, they make homes, they make families, and how this is all woven together. Uh, the book begins with their mothers, actually, in the communities they grew up in, in the 1940s and 50s, radical Jewish communities in Brooklyn, um, and sort of shows how political activism was baked into their identities from the very start. They were the definition of, of red diaper babies, as the subtitle of the book suggests. The book then follows the two as Dick becomes a professor of sociology, Mickey a scientific researcher, and how they became involved in student organizing at the University of Michigan, finding themselves at, as founding members of Students for a Democratic Society and, and the New Left. We follow them through the tumult and excitement of organizing in the 1960s, civil rights, Vietnam. Uh, through high moments of high drama, such as Dick almost being killed for his activism. We move from Michigan to Chicago to Santa Barbara, California. And then we follow them past the 60s through the rest of their lives, how their activism transformed alongside the times and alongside their own biographies towards community-based politics in Santa Barbara, engaging in different ways with social institutions, electoral politics, Dick becoming uh, what he calls a tenured radical. But the most compelling part of the book, I'll say, is how all of this political activism is woven in with their day-to-day biographies. Along the way, they have kids, they make a family, they keep up friendships, make new friendships, make new communities. Um, And this is not separate from their political activism. It's all happening together. So the book has tons of lessons and inspirations for all kinds of people, from anyone interested in American politics in the 20th century, to academics who want to link their work to social justice, to activists and organizers really anyone who wants to make a life that is meaningful. Uh, I'll let you, Dick, edit that that summary throughout this interview, but I'd like to uh, first start with a question um, sort of about identity politics. Like I mentioned, the beginning of the book starts with the community you grew up in and with your mother, who was a, a communist teacher in Brooklyn uh, and was, was involved in a lot of things through that. And it just seems like... Uh, politics was baked into your bones from the very beginning. And uh, I know that that's driven both yours and Mickey's activism throughout your lives. And identity politics comes up today as something that people talk a lot about, the pros and cons of it. I wonder if you would tell us sort of what you think about 
identity in your politics and then how identity politics can work or can't work. That's a very big question. We could spend the rest of our time just on that one. But, um, right. I, and I think the, the word identity, the way uh, is being used by you in two different probably meanings in, in one sentence there, identity means who, who the individual uh, is and aspires to be and, and uh, the individual's self-understanding of, of his or her past and, as well as uh, contemporary life. That's one meaning of identity. But the second meaning uh, is collective identity. That is what um, group loyalties and group, group com- commitments one has and how these relate to um, uh, one's self-identity. And, and identity politics, I think, uh, came to be used to mean uh, a politics that revolved around uh, the defense of a particular group's uh, uh, cultural uh, cultural uh, streams and values, uh, uh, a kind of defensive posture, uh, or 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 and or a struggle by a oppressed or disadvantaged group for recognition. Uh, for full equality, but based on the, that individual group's uh, uh, preservation rather than counterposed to that a more universalistic or class kind of politics, which, which says equality should base, be based on a universal uh, sense of justice, that people of different uh, histories and traditions should, should unite for common uh, common interest in justice and equality. Um, and so uh, identity politics got d- defined in, in this kind of uh, discussion, uh, you know, as, as a kind of resistance to class politics or alternative to class politics. I have to say that I've always felt, based on our own experience that you alluded to, but also my reading of the American left and social movements, that this is all a little too simple. Um, the American uh, left, the socialists, uh, for example, in the 19th century and into the 20th century, um, and the organizations that they spawned and created, and the, even the unions they created, were deeply rooted in ethnic subcultures. Um, Jewish socialism is a particular uh, stream of American socialism. And so is Finnish immigrants from Finland and the socialism that they developed in the Midwest, in the Minnesota and so forth. And I don't want to keep rambling on, but the point is the, one of the distinctive things about this country history, even on the left is that it, class consciousness was, has always been interwoven with uh, race and ethnicity. Um, that's nothing new. The left struggle within, let's say, the Jewish world back in the early 20th century to get Jewish workers to see that they had common interests with workers of other backgrounds, even as they tried to cultivate their own particular Jewish cultural perspectives. So part of the story in our book is that Mickey experienced is that the Yiddish language, which was a vernacular language in Europe, 
became a literary language, a written language in this country uh, on the, because of the efforts of socialist organizers to speak to the uh, Jewish working class. They were speaking a universal message, but in this particular framework of identity that the language and, and uh, other cultural uh, features provided. So it, this is part of what we wanted to convey in the book is that these, and even the title, the uh, Making History, Making Blintzes, sort of implies that um, even the collective identity that, that is used to d- define identity politics can be an, a significant force for social change on a universal level, even as you try to adhere to and, and enrich your own particular uh, group identity. Um, and that that's actually the experience that Mickey in particular, she, she was raised in a Yiddish-speaking family. She didn't speak English till she went to school. Um, and uh, in the Bronx, she actually was in the Bronx, not Brooklyn. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and yet uh, what she learned in that way was this um, set of universal values about human emancipation, but in the Yiddish language. <laughs> Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe that maybe you've got other things you want to probe around that, but that's sort of a, a entree into how I think about these things. And we're very critical. We're very critical of those who say identity politics or identity perspectives should be given up in favor of some universalistic uh, framework. It, that's that's never been, uh, and it's not true that it's part of the American past was universalistic and only in the 60s did uh, identity politics begin to begin to emerge. That isn't a true story at all. Right. I, I want to follow one part of that of just something I, I really took away from the book is I feel like we often think about political activism as being driven by a deep uh, value system, deep ideologies, and clearly Mickey and yourself grew up in those. But it's also, as the book demonstrates, your activism and your organizing and your values are, are very embedded in the communities in which you lived, both growing up and then in Michigan and everywhere else. I wonder if you, if you could speak to, I don't know, is, it, is this like values-driven activism? Is it community-driven activism? Or how do those two relate? Well, it relates through, uh, I think, the word democracy. Um, in trying, uh, when we both of us and a lot of other red diaper babies of our generation, people who were raised within, say, the communist world or the old left, who who, who grew up with socialist or communist parents, by the late fifties, people uh, like that who were in school or getting out of college and still young, wanted a left, but they didn't want the left of the past, and the left of the past. The old left was defined, as you're suggesting, ideologically. The socialists at war with the communists um, around very uh, co- coherent doctrines uh, that they believed they were enacting. Uh, and I, I think when we came together at Port Huron, Michigan, uh, you know, 40, 50, 60 young people to create a new left organization. We all came from those different backgrounds, but wanted something that would fuse our our perspectives and start something fresh. And the framework we 
adopted or the key to it was the term used in the Portuguese statement, participatory democracy, radical democracy, complete democracy. That's what socialism really was about, in my opinion. And I've written quite a bit about this. Um, and, and I think it's at the heart of the Port Huron statement. We don't even use the word socialism in that statement as a part of defining our, our shared perspective, we the SDS. Uh, instead, it was um, participatory democracy. Well, that once you say my goal as a political activist is to promote democracy, then that to me... Uh, you know, resolves the kind of issue you were alluding to in your question. It isn't that you're trying to impose on people a, um, a set of ideas or get them simply to agree with you on certain issues or to endorse your uh, your brand. Uh, the goal is to get people to act for themselves, to define for themselves what their interests are, to, um, uh, to uh, seek their own empowerment whether it comes to, uh, you know, in every aspect of life, including uh, micro level as well as uh, macro level um, kinds of decision making and, and uh, rule making and, and resource allocation, uh, all of those things should be as much as possible under the control of the people who are affected by those kinds of decisions. That's how we put it in Port Huron's statement. So I, 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 that's how I would answer the question that you're raising. It's not about preaching, uh, preaching to people to convert them to something. It's more like enabling, and facilitating, and encouraging people to uh, act for themselves collectively. And, and, and in that case, in that framing, in a way, we're very uh, we're coming up against certain features of American culture that are. Uh, difficult, and that's this the whole individualism and uh, concepts of individual self-reliance as the uh, way to make your life. Uh, that's always what the left wants to challenge. The left wants to say to people, uh, uh, the problems you know you have need to be articulated together with those who share those problems and acted upon collectively. And Often American history shows that many, many, many parts of our history are shaped by that kind of collective action. It's not that we're, we're bringing something to people who don't don't have that potential uh, until we are there. Um, if I could jump in there, Dick, there's, there's something about your answer there. And, and when I read about the new left, I read your writing, there's some, it feels to me that there's just such a clarity of purpose, sort of, that you all had then and have carried with you that as someone, I'm a millennial and I've grown up in this sort of 2008, post-2008 political moment. And it just feels, uh, as someone who's politically engaged, it just feels sometimes so confusing and chaotic what, what exactly the problems are, what exactly the solutions are. And whenever I'm looking back at the 60s, as a lot of people that are politically conscious of my age do, it looks like everything... Uh, was sort of obvious. Or, you know, it sort of seems like the problems were so immediate and in your face, civil rights, Vietnam, and the solution sort of, uh, what you were supposed to do looks to me to have been obvious. But I don't know if it felt that way. I guess I want to get your take on uh, 
you know, just the concept of participatory democracy, how do you come to that? Or how clear minded were you all at the time? Is it, does it look more clear looking back? Well, I mean, uh, in terms of question, uh, uh, what people but like mobilized to, to act around, yes, we were that 60s generation uh, became activists. We were lucky in, in the sense that you're putting it in that certain very glaring uh, situ- features of the current world were so necessary to overcome and oppose on moral grounds, uh, if nothing else. So civil rights is maybe the most, the clearest example. Uh, there's, there's no way to avoid the, the fact that a society claiming to be uh, based on principles of democracy and, and equality and, li- and liberty, that a society like that um, practiced apartheid segregation, extreme suppression of people based on their race had been based on slavery. And and the remedy for that lay in the actual claims of the Constitution of the United States. Uh, That's a a straightforward um, set of issues to confront uh, and a sense of the potential for change being there because of the Constitution and the the society's claims. Um, And we white privileged kids uh, very challenged by the uh, incredibly inspiring uh, actions of black students in the South to do things like sitting in and freedom rides and putting their own bodies on the line, uh, challenged us, what are we going to do to respond and to support uh, those clear moral challenges? Vietnam uh, wasn't so simple in that all of the public uh, presentation of that war in the media and, and in politics were uh, justification of the war. But where it became simple for students was that on the, some of the major campuses, like Michigan, where I was, and then Chicago, University of Chicago, where I was, and in other major universities, there were faculty already um, studying the uh, Asia, studying the uh, history and the uh, developmental situation in that part of the world, who were deeply and profoundly upset with with the war policy and began to speak about it. Uh, The institution of the teach-in where uh, faculty met with students for all-night sessions educating uh, about the details of those conditions and of the policy uh, led to then decisions to take action, which became very um, multifaceted and complicated and uh, in terms of what choices you made and what could actually work to uh, change the war policy or to stop the policy. Um, uh, it was a tremendously intense movement that went on from uh, for really 10 years uh, from 65 to 75. Uh, and so we, those who got caught up in the opposition to the war, you're right, it was simple. We, that was be our preoccupation. Every day we had pictures on uh, images on television of burning children and burning villages and U S bombing the hell out of a small country that had no way of retaliating militarily 
Um, and then our understanding that it was a war of white, a white superpower against um, a, a, a community of people of color, of peasant-based society, uh, a colonial, a colonialized society. All of those made it very clear morally, and also, uh, but not so clear strategically. How do we overcome this? Um, but uh, in, in the sense of knowing what to fight about, uh, fight for and fight against, uh, you're right. Those were two civil rights in Vietnam were the two big examples. I have to say that the nuclear arms race was the third. It didn't quite have the same uh, ongoing dr drama of protest and resistance. The, the ban, the bomb movement, which, which was very prominent at the beginning of the 60s, had its uh, was super, superseded by the overall anti-war, anti-Vietnam movement in terms of people's preoccupation. But the idea that the human race could be wiped out by the decisions of a couple of uh, leaders of a couple of countries uh, was so obviously something that had to be challenged. Um, so, uh, so that's... Uh, you know, I'm just confirming what you're saying. We we had a we had we there were very specific, if if extremely difficult, uh, moral challenges that uh, that those who were those of us who were looking for a way to reengage in 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 social change uh, could were, were we were moved by. That's why we wanted social change. Were these these challenges were there. But the conversation in SDS and, and on campuses among uh, progressive activists from the beginning was these problems are expressions of a deeper system, uh, system contradictions or systemic, uh, fundamental systemic uh, problems that needed to be uh, transformation, not just resistance, was necessary. Um, and that partly was because people had read Marx or were familiar with, with the radical critiques of capitalism and of imperialism, bringing those ideas into the movement. But also because if you think like the war in Vietnam, here's a war that's deeply unpopular in the country, that the, that the United States was losing. And yet you had President Lyndon Johnson president, uh, Nixon president, saying openly, I'm not ending this war, even if the majority of people oppose it. That sounds like a system problem, not just a policy uh, difference, if you, if you want to say it. And um, so the, the larger question or the deeper question of, Social transformation, that was not something the new left thought we had answers for. Participatory democracy, to me, as a, as a way of framing the vision, at least gives you, a, um, to me, a um, guidelines for how to act and how to think about alternatives, which is the fundamental idea being you the alternatives need to increase ordinary people's capacity to um, have a voice in the decisions affecting them. So that's the, that's the 
standard against which you measure your ideas for alternative social organization. And in terms of action, if you seriously say, well, our actions should be guided by an effort to increase democracy, not only in an in a future society, but in the immediate situation, that kind of helpful in choosing what what kinds of action choices you will make, I think. But it doesn't simplify anything. Um, and if I could just jump on that, what, what do you think about the enduring legacy of that vision? I mean, what have you learned since the Port Huron statement that how that leads you to well, edit or move those ideas forward? Well, I. Um, did you miss something? Then? Did you need something I, extra? I felt until recently that the logic of uh, social change going on in the world really was in the direction uh, of participatory democracy. And I think the high point of that was perhaps the overthrow of the communist uh, parties in Eastern Europe through mass uprisings, different colors of revolution in the streets uh, of Prague and, and so forth. And then even the Arab Spring was another case in point. It isn't that participatory democracy simply means mass occupations of the public squares and the bringing down of the authoritarian regime. But my romantic self said to, to myself, uh, those uprisings must be the beginning. They, they're certainly going to be the beginning of a fervor in those societies for a more democratic um, way of operating. So to me, and I don't have deep knowledge enough to understand this, the result of those efforts was to restore authoritarianism, not in the, not with the label communist authoritarianism, but not that different. Um, and that's a, that's a big disappointment to me. Uh, uh, but I, and, and to the whole idea that there was a, a arc of history that was bending toward democracy, which is what I uh, was quite sure of. I still haven't given up that hope and that belief, but uh, I, I think that uh, everyone who's serious politically has to take account of the enormous uh, uh, return of authoritarian, it's not just authoritarian regimes, but Regimes that are like thugs, that are that are rackets as well as uh, dictatorial, uh, in so many countries, um, and uh, I don't quite, uh, I, I don't have a theory for explaining this, uh, or or even a, a, an idea of knowing. Uh, I, I do take a lot of hope from the fact that in those some of those countries, there is now a democratic backlash going on. People are organizing. Uh, in in its in an opposite and resistant direction, so in Poland, in the city of Warsaw, huge demonstrations recently uh, against the authoritarian policies. Uh, just as one case in point, uh, there are other examples that are not so good. I mean, I don't understand uh, Russia and the, and the seeming passivity of the Russian people toward the Putin gangster regime. Um, and uh, I, I guess I understand intuitively okay. why Chinese people don't necessarily yearn for democracy above all other things. Uh, and in a way, maybe 
but I don't want to go off on those kind of tangents. So, so on the other side, on the, on the more on the more uh, progressive, hopeful side, uh, even though we are uh, currently experiencing this authoritarian thug as our own president, I see uh, at the base of a society, at the, and this is partly what our book is about, in the last 50 years being here in California, uh, a, a very widespread uh, pattern of social movement and collective action toward democratic control on a community level. Uh, environmentalism is basically a movement for uh, where communities can get control of their future in terms of certainly environmental uh, kinds of issues, but really uh, under, even beyond that, the environmental movement is saying we need community control of life, of, of the conditions of our life. And that, I think, is, uh, uh, you know, with ups and downs, something that's been a process in a state like California. Um, the growth of uh, the movements for uh, uh, equality and so-called identity movements, but based on oppressed communities who are not only demanding, but achieving levels of participation and recognition and representation that uh, that fulfill what we were hoping 50 years ago might happen. Um, California is now a, a majority-minority state. Um, its its uh, government is uh, filled with people who come out of uh, Latino and other minority movements. Um, gay rights is another example uh, of, uh, it's not just a movement for, uh, you know, gay rights. It's a movement for, again, the right of people to control their own lives rather than to be dictated by rules over which they have no control. I want to pull back to one of the themes of the book, um, and I'm going to speed up a little bit. Uh, the, you know, the heart of the book is in the 60s, I would say. There's about four chapters titled Our 60s that are brilliant and readers should turn their attention to. But I want to, I want to ask you about one of the themes and that's related to some of your other, your own research, which is how uh, activists and organizers, how they sort of uh, keep up and reinterpret and try to live out their activism even outside of the 60s moment. I mean, the book follows you two, Mickey and yourself, as you maintain this sort of political life uh, into the 70s, into the Reagan years and all that. Um, and I've read the, the other book of yours that I know well, which is Beyond the Barricades, uh, is a very interesting take on looking some years later, two decades maybe, at a group of activists in Santa Barbara in the 60s, sort of how are they living out or not living out their, uh, their political ambitions of their younger years. Could you tell me a little bit, um, maybe just about your thesis in that book, uh, how it played out in your lives, and how people sort of continue try to continue to live out their their political selves, uh, even in different, totally different situations and different political moments? Well, that's really a, one of the key questions that we were trying to um, deal with, not only in the book but in our own our own uh, you know way we live. Uh, Mickey and I feel that we. Uh, in the 60s were uh, at odds with a lot of what was prevailing among the young people that we were working with uh, about these kind of issues. Um, the general view in the 60s among left-wing young activists was that the most honorable 
way to live was to be totally committed from morning till night to the, you might say, to revolution, um, which, which uh, in both, and that meant uh, no entangling relationships that might preoccupy you uh, in opposition to your commitment to the movement. Um, and that kind of total organizer ident- uh, way of living, which is quite a, a appealing, I think, to a lot of uh, people, young people in their, uh, as they get out of college and, and look for what, how to make a meaningful life. Well, uh, total commitment, uh, meaning I don't want uh, to start a family. I don't want to get married. I don't want to have a regular job. I want to be in the movement 24 um, seven because the, because my, um, the urgency of, of now, the urgency of, uh, of conditions requires that kind of self-sacrificing commitment, but it isn't simply sacrificing. It's a, a kind of uh, heroism in a way, I guess. Um, well, we for, we were already married when we went to Port Huron. We were already even we were a couple of years older than most of the people there. We already had jobs, <laughs> and um, Mickey, in particular, began, from her working class. Roots would always say to me, look, I don't want to live that kind of rootless uh, life. And Mickey herself, more than even I, uh, wanted a life in which, as she put it, I need to know, uh, you know, how we're going to get food on the table. She, She defined it as a kind of working class attitude. Another question I'd like to ask Dick as a young scholar myself is, you have a lot of reflections in the book on being a tenured radical, on trying to fuse your scholarship as a sociologist with your uh, with your political activism. And I'm finding as I enter this world, a lot of sort of contradictions between the requirements of the academy and the requirements of political organizing. I'm wondering if you, if you could tell us about how you've made sense of those two things throughout your life, how you brought them together, when you found it difficult to bring together, and how you found your way forward. Well, the book tells stories about the, the sort of struggles I had within uh, academia to, um, made to uh, against uh, various kinds of conservative and traditional uh, and and hierarchical uh, practices that um, at the University of Chicago. You know, I was a young member of a very conservative, uh, uh, top-down department that had gone through some battles even before I got there in which very quantitative, you know, quantoid uh, sociologists, scientistic sociologists drove out more humanistic uh, figures uh, in, in the early 60s, uh, I got there, uh, maybe they thought I was one of them, but um, <laughs> I uh, uh, really for a couple of years didn't even say much at department meetings and so forth. Uh, in, in But I did have, again, I, I, I had the good fortune of being a political sociologist and a social psychologist who could teach and research on the very same uh, issues that I was engaged with 
as a person, as a political actor, um, it was all to me one coherent piece. That's a great a piece of good fortune, or I, of course, I helped shape those opportunities for myself. But um, I could do a, a, a research project on the social origins of political activists, uh, a project that, that had bore very good fruit in terms of results and became a very well-known uh, piece of research about helping to understand what was going on in the 60s. Uh, I, I had the good opportunity to do that while I was at Chicago. I had some allies in the senior faculty uh, of, the, of the university for that. Uh, I spent a great deal of time, but the fact that you are able to control your own time to some extent as a, as a professor uh, was beneficial. I, I could go uh, and be part of uh, various kinds of organizing situations in the city as part of my work as a sociologist. Uh, and um, I, had the, I had the flexibility uh, to be able to do that. What, when things came to a head in terms of confrontation and, and irreconcilable conflict was when my department at Chicago uh, refused to renew the contract of a, uh, of a young uh, assistant professor named Marlene Dixon. She's one of the very few women in the entire faculty of the University of Chicago. She was a junior faculty member. She had, uh, was up for renewal of her contract, not even a tenure decision. And the department senior faculty voted uh, to to terminate her. Uh, she was a popular teacher, which they didn't know, because they paid no attention to her teaching. And uh, she was a lefty. And so the student movement, activist uh, uh, subculture on campus rose up to protest her firing, occupied the administration building for t- more than two weeks, uh, and became a big issue in the city, a big, very visible event. And I was one of the few faculty in the entire campus uh, to support the student uh, student demand, which was which was really uh, that students should have some voice in the decisions about the faculty, uh, especially when uh, in terms of people who served their needs as teach when they were as teachers. And so I. Um, I was in really severe conflict with the uh, senior faculty. And we tell a good number of stories about this, I think, in in the book, uh, which I won't delve into. But because I had done work that got visibility, I got a job offer in California from UC Santa Barbara, which I eventually accepted. And that was a tenure position. Once I got here uh, in 69, uh, because I was publicized as a founder of SDS, being hired with tenure at the University of California, by that time SDS was considered a uh, subversive revolutionary organization. Um, uh, there was a move by Governor Reagan to try to get rid of me right at the start, uh, but that failed for of good reasons. So I had, I, had, I had moments of being embattled. And then after I got to the faculty here, uh, our department, because it had hired me and, be, and for other reasons, the activism of 
some of the faculty and a lot of the students in sociology here at UCSB, it meant that the department was pretty embattled in those first years of the 70s. There's a big split in the faculty between old guard faculty who very much frightened by the fear that Reagan as governor and, and the right wing would come down and destroy the university. Therefore, they took, they said, we have to do the repression so they won't come in and repress the left, um, that repress the whole uh, campus. That was the, the kind of reasoning. Um, and then there was this younger uh, generation of faculty who had recently arrived at UC Santa Barbara, and I was one of those people who challenged that way of thinking and who um, wanted to be, you know, we were, we wanted a more democratic university. We wanted a curriculum that could embrace um, the social issues of our time. We supported Black studies and Chicano studies and um, other interdisciplinary uh, ventures into uh, that, that were being resisted by old, old guard academics. So I guess the point I'm making is that um, uh, it wasn't that I found a way to fuse activism and, and my academic role uh, and easily fulfilled that. It was uh, um, always something that you that even in in more benign circumstances uh, you still have to struggle with because uh, how you use your time, how that relates to your rewards and, and uh, promotions of, of academia, uh, that becomes an issue. What kind of research you do, how it's evaluated, uh, all of those are issues that, that have to be struggled with. So one of the important things in the late 60s that happened in higher education was the formation of what initially was called radical caucuses in the disciplines. We We helped found something like that in sociology back in 68, 69. And the, these caucuses, which began to publish journals and became formations within, say, social science disciplines, um, you know, they were looking critically at the nature of the discipline, the theoretical foundations, the, the kinds of issues that were being addressed as well as the practices within the university and defending. There were quite a few faculty who jobs lost their jobs because of their activism. Uh, I could go on and on with this, but the point is organization became important nationally, especially in, our, in my generation, organization along disciplinary lines. Uh, and that... Uh, enable people to feel support networks around the country and make use of those. It enabled intellectual uh, work that uh, was innovative and challenged the status quo in those disciplines. What happened in sociology, maybe more than a lot of other social science disciplines, was the that people were elected to as president of the American Sociological Association, figures like Michael Burway, or Eric Wright uh, in, in recent period, uh, and others who advocated as president of the disciplinary association, what Borway called public sociology, uh, a, a sociology that served social needs, a sociology that 
could connect with social movements, not just with the elite. Um, and uh, there may be departments where such uh, perspectives are not honored, but the fact that the ASA uh, recognized at sort of official level the validity of this kind of perspective was an important to me uh, change compared to when I was in graduate school and when I was at the University of Chicago, where such views were were called underground sociology. Um, now they're part of the dynamic of the discipline itself. Um, so yet, I, I sound optimistic there, but I'm not, because I think that when push comes to shove and people are trying to publish in journals and, and, and get uh, jobs and get tenure and all that, they fall back on a kind of work that C. Wright Mills called um, abstracted empiricism, uh, meaning um, turning out of studies for the sake of their publication rather than because you're actually trying to solve real issues and real problems through your research. And my own view is, and my advice to students is always, graduate students is, um, respond to your heart and your gut and your curiosity and your values, even if it um, seems like uh, it, it'll get, uh, you know, that doesn't give you the easy path to uh, professional uh, recognition because peer-reviewed journals can be, uh, you know, they, they, they will reject articles because they don't meet the rigorous standards that uh, narrow, narrowly focused research is more easily able to reach. Just one example. Um, and the kinds of in, uh, petty politics that you find in academic departments uh, can be extremely deflating in terms of people's more uh, higher aspirations for, uh, for doing the kind of work they want to do because and that kind of politics, I always wanted to challenge and explode rather than allow to fester. Um, but because it's very easy to fall into armed camps and warfare uh, struggles uh, in, in academic departments, partly because people, I think, their lives are not that exciting. So the drama of department warfare may take the place of dramatic life or something for some people. Uh, so uh, I, I think, um, so that's not a very good solution. I, there's no way to, I mean, you, you, if you get onto the stage of being in the job market, you need to, you need to really see that the places you want to apply to uh, are, are ready to recognize and appreciate your work. You do have to do the work. Uh, in other words, there's no uh, there's no substitute for actually doing the scholarly work, doing the research, during the during the intellectual work uh, that um, uh, that is by published. I mean made available to wider publics for debate and discussion and and use. Um, and uh, but. I think you're concerned like I was with how is teaching fit into that mix? And uh, 
I think in something you wrote me, uh, in an email you wrote me, you, you were saying you think teaching is even less uh, recognized in, in the career in the career evaluations that you get than it than it used to be. Well, that's a complaint that's been there for seventy five years in academia. Uh, that same language. Uh, so I'm not sure that anything is worse now than it's ever been. Uh, I do think there are, well, one of my sons is a sociologist teaching at a community college, and he did that move because he wanted to teach. And at a community college, that is what is uh, what is valued and, 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 and uh, but, but if you go to, if you get your graduate degree at a research university, uh, it's that kind of career move is is considered uh, second rate and not what you should be doing. I don't, uh, you know, that needs to be examined. Um, that that way of thinking, uh, where are people actually freer to be who they want to be if they uh, want a uh, academic role that is uh, value oriented and that is uh, making a difference? Maybe junior colleges should not be considered marginal, especially at a time when the society is likely to be investing more and more uh, at that level of higher education, especially when there are a lot of students in community colleges who may be the very kinds of young people you want to be connected with. Um, I'm, it's easy for me to say because I'm retired, I'm not, <laughs> but, uh, but, but based on my uh, son's own experience, it's not a bad path, but I'm not recommending it as the main path. I'm just saying that some of the some of the assumptions that we get in graduate school about what the right kind of career is, uh, those assumptions themselves may not hold water. I know here, even at the University of California at UCSB, which is very much a research university, there are teaching positions now being set up that are uh, full-fledged faculty positions that emphasize teaching. Uh, I, I'm surprised that this has happened, but it seems to be happening, not on a big scale, but those jobs are currently being advertised here at UCSB in a couple of fields. Uh, if, if that's a sign of something happening, maybe it is because uh, that criticism of the, the um, ignoring of people's teaching roles in their, in their career uh, path, in their career evaluations. That criticism, you know, is very widespread. It's there in the, in the legislature. It's there in the, in the public world as well as within the university. And um, I would say it's, a, it's always been a valid, uh, extremely valid point, um, even though I'm willing to buy the argument that uh, if you're doing exciting research, you're going to transmit that excitement to your students in the classroom. I'm certain that that can be the case. But if uh, people who are really devoted to teaching get fail to get tenure, that's that's a counter, very much counter to the commitment to teaching. And teaching is too simple a word. I think it, teaching can include your public role, your role as a uh, community educator in a field like sociology? Do you spend time uh, in, in public sociology? Uh, and how is that evaluated uh, when you come up for, uh, for promotions and, and tenure and all the rest of it? 
Um, I think we have to fight for those that those principles. That is the widening of the career paths. I have to fight for that. And as a faculty member with some role in governance, uh, you have those opportunities to to fight for that. And a lot, I'm critical of a lot of uh, younger faculty these days who don't get involved in governance and who uh, figure out their own little niche where they can be comfortable and bargain for their own particular benefits and and uh, privileges and don't spend the time in the uh, day-to-day of uh, critically evaluating the way the institution operates because the um, obviously main trend in, in society, including university, of course, is so-called corporatization, the selling out of the university to the highest bidder, uh, that can be resisted by the faculty as it's being re- similar kinds of battles are going on within Google and other uh, of the uh, IT firms where staffs are saying, we don't want Google to be doing this kind of uh, partnership with you know, weapons makers or something like that. That's that's the transfer of battles that were happening in, in the past on, on campuses into the uh, business corporate world, which is a very hopeful thing that there is that kind of worker organization for principles within corporate operation. Well, that, so that that's another argument for academic uh, governance as a framework of, of political action, because what happens on campus can be a model for what happens in other institutional settings, I think. Uh, that's a long and rambling answer, but maybe... A helpful one, for sure. I want to ask another question that uh, brings us a little bit back to the book. Um, after you going through Mickey and your Santa Barbara years, you sort of bring us to the current political moment. There's some reflections on Trump, as well as the Bernie Sanders campaign and the political revolution behind that. And you note in there that there are some striking similarities between Bernie's personal biography and political history and your own. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us uh, tell us about some of those parallels and then what does that mean to you, the fact that, that he and his ideas have sort of set the tone for Democratic Party politics uh, in 2020 and he's, he himself has stepped away from the Oval Office. What does that mean to you? Um, please, any reflections on that? Yeah, so... Bernie's a couple years younger than me uh, and uh, was born in Brooklyn, uh, not too far from where I grew up. Uh, he went for a period of time to my alma mater, Brooklyn College, after I did. I wasn't there when he was there. And then he transferred to the University of Chicago just before I got to teach there. So uh, the, the two, two of the... Colleges that I was involved with were also places that he was at. Um, he didn't, uh, when he was in college at Chicago, he didn't join SDS. I'm not sure there is even an SDS chapter when he was there. But he joined something called the Young People's Socialist League. Uh, and I think he was probably raised to some extent in a, in certainly it was likely in Brooklyn, uh, back in the when he was in, in his childhood, that his parents or his neighborhood had a lot of lefties and socialists and, and so forth. So he, he uh, his attraction to the 
Young People's Socialist League, which was a long, old organization. It was an old, it was founded in the in the 1930s, YPSL it was called. So he was a member of that, but his he, he really, apparently his activism really revolved around civil rights. He was involved in sit-ins at the University of Chicago protesting the fact, and this is hard to believe, that even in the 60s, the university-owned uh, housing had restrictions on Blacks being able to rent the housing. And uh, he was part of a protest that, that overthrew that uh, secret, those secret covenants, as they were called, uh, in, in, in the Chicago neighborhood at that time. So uh, anyway, he, he moved to Vermont. That's a, that's, uh, that was something that was happening quite a bit in the early, in the late 60s, and early 70s, moving out of the big city and into sort of virgin territory, if you will, where, where, where the political field might be open. And I guess he wanted from the beginning to see what could happen if he ran for office with those, that socialist politics. And uh, he ran on a kind of third party ticket and didn't get anywhere that way at first. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure of all the steps he took. It's not that relevant, but he stayed within the, the electoral world to a great extent uh, and finally succeeded by being elected mayor of Burlington, Vermont, which is not a big city, but it is the capital of Vermont, uh, and uh, be very successful as mayor uh, in promoting uh, job-creating development and promoting good municipal practices, made a good name for himself, uh, became ran. Vermont only has one member of Congress, so he got that seat. And now those were, he ran as an independent. Uh, and, and that shows a tremendous political success because he ran against the two other parties, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats, and he won those seats. And then Senator. Uh, and that speaks to uh, political skill, which I think should not be underrated, the fact that uh, that he was able to uh, demonstrate that his, uh, not only he as a person, but the uh, political policy framework that he was bringing uh, would be preferable to the two old parties. Now, I think he ran for president in 2016 with no expectation of getting anywhere, but of wanting to inject certain ideas into the uh, political uh, dialogue, so to speak, like universal health care uh, and uh, the $15 minimum wage. And uh, I think he was probably surprised by the degree to which he got support vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hillary uh, in the primaries. Uh, to the point where he was became a very serious contender. So there's a couple of things about that effort of his that really were surprising and, and, and intriguing to someone like me from the from the new left. I've said before we at Port Huron did not call ourselves socialists because we thought the word socialism carried so much negative baggage in. In America, uh, and even for us, 
I mean, socialism meant to Americans either Stalin-style communist dictatorship or to a lot of us young people in the early 60s, social democracy in Europe, which didn't really challenge the basic logic of capitalism as far as we believed. And it seemed like a new vocabulary, including terms like participatory democracy, should replace socialism in the American lexicon of the left. And um, that's what we did. So to have a guy not only say that he's a socialist, but then get a tremendous amount of support running for president, but not only running for president, after the campaign, he's the most popular, I think, politician in the country in terms of uh, his approval levels. National politicians, he probably has the highest approval level, or one of the highest, maybe the highest of anybody on the national stage. He's got a lot of disapprovals, too. And so I thinking a lot about this. And first of all, why does he call himself a socialist? That's one of the ironies of this, because his whole program running for president is European social democracy. It is not uh, what we used to think of socialism meant. That is public uh, ownership and control of the means of production um, rather than private uh, corporate and business operations, uh, getting rid of the profit system. He doesn't talk about that. Uh, he doesn't even talk about um, worker-owned uh, businesses, which uh, there's quite a few in, in Vermont, and I have a very close friend who is the CEO of a very successful worker-owned business in Vermont, who says that in Vermont, Bernie was always very supportive of that, but that's not been part of his national uh, agenda, as far as I know. Uh, in fact, footnote, Elizabeth Warren has advocated that workers have a, the right to elect uh, members of the boards of directors, 40% of the boards of directors of the major corporations. That isn't anything Bernie has advocated. Uh, and yet it's, it's part of his history to understand that kind of worker uh, management uh, idea as an important possibility. So what, what, what is, how do we figure this out? He's calling himself a socialist, even though the main pillars of socialist ideology are not part of his program. How do we figure that out? Well, first, brilliantly, I think he is not rejecting, he could say, yeah, I was a socialist when I was young, but I'm no longer that. That would end Bernie Sanders, in my opinion, relevance then he would be just an ordinary politician. Um, he is saying, I've always been a critic of the system, and I still proudly wear this democratic socialist uh, brand. Uh, and that gives him a sense of integrity, conveying uh, uh, that he's a man of integrity, a person of uh, principle, a person who will not simply... Uh, bend to corporate uh, dictation or corporate uh, inducement uh, given those principles. So that's, I think, part of his popularity rests on the very, not, not because people necessarily know what socialism means at this point or in any point, 
I mean, again, footnote, when I was teaching, I didn't think most students had a way of defining socialism uh, because the term has been used so variously and so uh, differently over the years of history. So anyway, that's one part of it. But But then his program, what's brilliant about that, things he ran on in 2016 and he's continuing to run on, every single thing he has advocated is supported in public opinion surveys by the majority of Americans, every single item. And yet none of them are on the agenda of mainstream politics, whether we talk about Medicare for all, universal health care, when we talk about uh, well, uh, uh, free tuition in public universities, whether we talk about um, the green infrastructure ideas. When he started to run in 2016, uh, $15 minimum wage was just on, on a kind of state level coming to, uh, to, the, to the political discourse. So, but when people are asked about these ideas, they... Uh, majority, strong majorities in most cases, have endorsed them. And I'm struck by that just personally, uh, because I used to teach political sociology with that uh, as a starting point. I give students these poll data on support for things like that and say, "How here, here's this stuff that the majority of Americans want from their government, and they're not only not getting it, they're not even hearing there are people running for office advocate these things. Uh, so he, I, I feel kind of great that I had this insight as a teacher that he then has capitalized on as a, uh, as a candidate, as a way of educating people about what needs to be done uh, to change America. Uh, and that is quite brilliant I'm making all this up. I've never heard him say any of the things that I'm saying now about why he's done these things. Uh, he's very uh, on message all the time, the message always being to advocate these ideas and to criticize uh, the, the billionaire class controlling our politics. Um, but uh, And he doesn't explain that much. Maybe he has in things that I haven't read about that he's written, uh, why he has framed his whole uh, effort in, uh, as both socialist, even when it's not socialist, uh, but around these, uh, Europe, basically, they're Europeanized. That's another advantage of these principles, of these uh, policies he's advocating. They are in practice in other countries. They're not just pie-in-the-sky ideas. Uh, and yet, in most cases, they're ideas that at one time or other have been a part of the American uh, political discourse, but not recently. Uh, and so it, it's not that these are foreign ideas. They're ideas that in other countries have been adopted. So the question then becomes, why can't we do these? And the question's been now being asked by by a great many Americans um, as a result of, of Sanders' efforts. So um, I, uh, I support Sanders uh, and give money to him because I want that voice to be out there saying these things and doing these things. Do I want him to get the nomination? No. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe naively and foolishly happy that we've got this range of candidates 
And I think because of his influence, everyone running so far has some ideas that are breakthrough ideas. You know, when Bill and Hillary, they practice the politics of very incremental, marginal change as what they advocated. That was deliberate. Bill Clinton advocated that if you want to run for office as a Democrat, don't promise anything big. Talk about school uniforms. Uh, And um, uh, now all the people running for office have some very significant structural change or, or major reform ideas that they've put on the agenda. I'm happy to see them compete to see who's got the most capacity to win a popular base. As a 81-year-old guy, and Bernie will be 81 if he were elected pretty soon after being elected, I wonder whether, uh, not because I, I, I don't feel incapable of being an effective person in the world, but um, I'm, you know, I'm ready to move to a retirement village. I don't think the White House is a retirement village uh, <laughs> atmosphere. So, so I'm not sure why he, whether he even really would wants to win and be president. I guess he's enough of an egomaniac that he probably does want that. But, um, but uh, at this point in the in the process, it's good that he's out there. And, it, and look what's happened. So Elizabeth Warren, who said, you know, it's almost like someone's written about this, that back in the turn of the 20th century, you had uh, you had a debate within the mainstream of progressive politics between sort of anti-capitalist perspectives and, and strength and reforming capitalist perspectives. So Elizabeth Warren's claiming she wants to strengthen capitalism by making it work for people. The, the net result of that is not very different in terms of the actual policies that might be advocated. And in her case, she's coming up with ideas that are better than Bernie's because they're, they actually are structural changes like worker participation and management as one case or a wealth tax, which really uh, has been waiting a long time for that to be on uh, made uh, Americans to be aware of that as a way of raising a huge amount of revenue that you you actually tax the entire wealth of the richest people in society at a very small percentage that would generate huge amounts for things that we need uh, as a society. Um, that's very brilliant, and um, uh, and then you have uh, uh, a lot of ideas about campaign finance reform, for example. And uh, the Green New Deal, fabulous way of reframing both the environmental uh, sustainability question and the question of, of justice in society and job creation, all the rest of it. That's not a new idea, but it's uh, now newly on the agenda. Um, and uh, so I'm excited about the discourse for the first time in my life. Uh, I think the uh, the actual content of what's being dis- said by the people running in the Democratic Party is actually very promising, uh, and and uh, and owes a lot to Bernie's initiative. I think, which show it's not that Bernie did this; it's that Bernie showed brilliantly that there's this vast hunger 
uh, in the society and in the democratic base in particular for, uh, for a structural social change, not just for tinkering around the edges. And it has to be the case that young people facing the dire warnings about, sustain, about the climate change would see the absolute necessity of moving quickly in these more radical ways. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, that, I don't know that we'll achieve those. We, want to, we don't even know how, what the election results are going to be, let alone whether the structural changes are possible. I think people on the left need to, while they get excited with all these ideas, they need to pay attention to uh, what Marxism teaches us about social change. If you propose a health insurance program that will wipe out the capacity of private corporations to uh, make profits out of health care, you are in for a class struggle over that. You can't just say, well, we, uh, we need the brave members of Congress to vote for that, and then we'll be able to do it. Um, that, it that is not Marxist, and that's not a criticism. It's not dealing with the structural realities of power. Uh, to simply think that we just we need people to be braver in their voting pattern or more more coherent in their advocacy of these things. It's a uh, tremendous, uh, and, it, and it isn't simply the campaign com- contributions of the pharmaceutical industry or uh, other corporations that are going to determine the outcome. That's not even the most important uh, factor. Uh, and we, we don't even know yet what resources of power uh, corporate interests that feel deeply threatened uh, by structural change, what what resources they have for manipulating uh, and blocking change. Uh, it's not just campaign ca- contributions. It's, their, it's simply uh, refusing to invest. Uh, it's... it's uh, uh, it's uh, the, the economic power that's there among the, the wealthy, the super rich and the corporations is itself, whether it's used in campaign contributions or not, is itself a, a way of uh, affecting the life chances of people directly uh, by saying, well, we can't invest because uh, these regulations don't, won't let us have profits. Uh, and therefore investment stops and therefore jobs are lost and therefore public support for change dries up. That's a not an unusual pattern, but it's something that's out there uh, uh, as, as a reality. So we have to be strategic. Bernie's pretty strategic. And I think when he demands Medicare for all and a single-payer system as the standard, that's strategically right because it then means that when the bills are passed, the compromise will be public, a public option. It will be Medicare for uh, options for people. It won't be Medicare for all, but it will be uh, a more social medicine than we have uh, have now. That's what I'm expecting. See what I'm saying? That if you if you give away the store in your initial demand uh, and compromise before the battle then you've lost the battle. But if you can uh, coherently demand 
and create a standard of achievement and goal uh, that you're serious about, then compromise works as, as a positive thing in terms of the, the dynamic of society. Um, if we demand free tuition for every student in public higher education, uh, that leads to initial efforts to get free tuition for, for community colleges. But the standard remains there as a vision and a goal to be struggled over. If we, uh, and, and, and I think in every area uh, of great social need, I think where compromise is going to be less possible is with respect to climate change. Uh, and yet uh, we haven't figured out uh, on a national level how to, how to move things in a direction that actually might save the planet. So that's, I'm, I, people say I'm an optimist. I'm not. I am hopeful because I see these forces uh, these these uh, movements for change as very promising, these ideas as very promising, but I am not optimistic about being able to overcome the uh, criminal power of corporate and ruling, you know, ruling upper class wealthy sectors to resist the needed changes out of their own greed and 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 actual criminality. Um, the billionaire class has a higher crime rate than uh than uh we find in in deprived urban communities i think um so that's my speech <laughs> it's a helpful one and i'll i'll just add that the bernie sanders moment is a great way that pulls together the themes from the book your yes. these personal biographies and this political moment uh, another thing that makes this book uh so so perfect for the moment we've taken a lot of your time dick uh thanks a lot for for coming on the show um and I recommend the book, Making History, Making Blintzes, uh, to all of our listeners. So thanks again. Well, thank you. Thanks thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm glad to be able to uh, uh, give these little speeches. And I'm glad to learn about this uh, this uh, podcast site and uh, hope, hope to uh, use it. But thanks, Patrick, for the initiative. Thank you very much. Thank you.